Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. After the crushing defeat of the First Punic War, Carthage's fortunes fell even further. Under the terms of the peace treaty signed with the Romans, the Carthaginians had to evacuate their remaining forces from Sicily. 20,000 mercenaries and Libyan conscripts arrived back in North Africa. They were seasoned veterans and well-armed and extremely angry because they had not been paid for years. When the Carthaginian government prevaricated about their back pay, then tried to renege, they mutinied. The mutineers were immediately joined by Carthage's Libyan subjects, who again rose up in rebellion. What followed next was a bloodbath called the Truceless War. As summed up by Polybius, this war lasted for three years and four months, and it far excelled all wars we know of in cruelty and defiance of principle. Even given some exaggeration by our historian, the war was nevertheless fought by both sides with stomach-churning savagery. The mutineers and Libyan rebels massacred any Carthaginian citizens who fell into their hands, mutilated captives, and murdered dissidents in their own ranks. The Carthaginians retaliated by laying waste to Libyan rebel communities and executing prisoners with ever more elaborate atrocities, such as having them trampled to death by elephants. At the nadir of the truceless war, the mutineers captured the Libyphoenician towns of Utica and Hippu Acra, then went on to beleaguer Carthage itself. The tide only began to turn when the Carthaginian Senate entrusted the supreme command to Hamilcar Barca, the gifted general who had led Carthage's last field army in Sicily. In a series of brutal campaigns, Hamilcar routed the rebel armies and recaptured the Libyan Phoenician towns. He exacted a brutal revenge on the leaders of the mutineers. The surviving ringleader, a Libyan soldier named Mathos, was paraded through the streets of Carthage. As he walked, he was slowly tortured to death by the citizens. By contrast, Hamilcar treated the Libyans who revolted with exemplary leniency. This wisdom would pay enormous dividends during the Second Punic War, when the Libyans stayed loyal throughout. From afar, Rome was closely watching Carthage's agony. The Romans refused to aid the mutineers, who seemed to them like just another outlaw biker gang like the Mamertines, only on a much larger scale. But when the fortunes of war swung back to Carthage, the attitudes of Rome's decision-makers quickly hardened. In 237, Rome demanded that Carthage surrender Sardinia and pay an additional massive indemnity of 1,200 talents. To drive the demand home, the consuls and senate convinced the Comitia Centuriata to declare war on Carthage. Having barely survived the truceless war, the Carthaginians had no choice except to swallow this latest and most unjust example of Roman aggression. Why did Rome make its move in 237 BCE? I think there were three reasons. First, there was the age-old cultural dynamic of Roman imperialism, the quest for military glory by the aristocrats and for booty by the common citizens. For decades afterwards, Sardinia's main use to Rome was as a campaigning theatre for war-hungry consuls and praetors. Second were the long-term security concerns of the Roman state. In putting down the Great Mutiny, Carthage revealed unexpectedly deep powers of resilience and recuperation. Seizing Sardinia deprived the Carthaginians of a forward base against Italy in any future war. The levy of a further war indemnity was designed to prevent that war by deepening Carthage's financial woes.
Finally, there was the bullying attitude of Roman aggression. The Romans never missed an opportunity to kick an opponent who was down. Victoring the truceless war confirmed Hamilcar Barca as the most gifted Carthaginian general of his time. More importantly, Hamilcar's victory also led to a crucial transformation in the nature and political structure of the Carthaginian Republic. After the truceless war, Hamilcar Barca was not just commander of the army, he was also the leader of the state. Even more importantly, he was able to pass on his power and authority to successors from within his immediate family. From the end of the truceless war to long after the Second Punic War, the true leaders of Carthage were not the elected chief civilian magistrates, the Sufets, or the Senate, the Adirim, but the generals of Hamilcar's dynasty, which historians have called the Barsids. The chief, indeed the only priority of the new Barsid regime, was the rebuilding of Carthaginian prosperity and power. Even before the Great Mutiny was defeated, Hamilcar and his followers were already hatching plans to this end. Africa was an unlikely source for a Carthaginian revival. The Carthaginians already controlled the best territories, stretching along the North African shore. Further expansion would bring them into rugged country, inhabited by the numerous and warlike Numidians. Hamilcar next considered Sardinia. Before he could act, the Romans had robbed the Carthaginians of the island. Only then did the Barsids turn their sights to Spain. As matters turned out, Spain was a superb choice. A necklace of Phoenician colonies girded the Iberian Peninsula. Since most were allies or dependencies of Carthage, they provided an excellent base for expansion. The Spanish hinterlands were rich in agricultural goods and precious metals, particularly silver, that could help rebuild Carthage's economy and treasury. The mosaic of warlike tribes and chiefdoms that covered southern Spain had long furnished mercenaries to Carthage's armies. Asserting Carthaginian dominion over these tribes would mean these tough, disciplined, and skilled warriors could be levied in even greater numbers. In 237 BCE, Hamilcar arrived at the ancient Phoenician colony of Gades, modern-day Cadiz, with a veteran army that had won the truceless war. His second-in-command was his son-in-law Hasdrubal, who was his equal in ability and energy. He also brought his eldest son, Hannibal Barca. Although only nine years old, Hannibal was ready to begin his military and political apprenticeship at his father's side. Hamilcar immediately set out to conquer Spain. Between 237 and 229 BCE, he conducted a series of sweeping campaigns that pushed Carthaginian control relentlessly eastwards, down the Guadalquivir River Valley and into the heart of the Iberian Peninsula. He employed a cunning combination of violence and diplomacy. For example, he had one Spanish lord, Indortes, blinded, castrated, and crucified, but he spared and freed Indortes' warrior followers. In the winter of 229-228 BCE, Hamilcar perished while on campaign. In Polybius's words, he finally met with an end worthy of his high achievements, dying bravely in a battle against one of the most warlike and powerful tribes after freely exposing his person to danger on the field. During his eight years in Spain, he had succeeded in reviving Carthage's prosperity and power. The wealth of Spain helped the Carthaginians pay off the Roman war indemnity in full and on time. Spanish warriors now filled the ranks of a rebuilt army. According to the 1st century BCE Sicilian Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, the Barsid army in Spain alone totaled 50,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 100 elephants. 
Hamilcar's achievements had also worked a transformation of the Carthaginian Empire. Before the First Punic War, Carthage had been a primarily maritime empire. Its principal armed force was its large, powerful navy. Its territorial interests were the major and minor islands of the western Mediterranean. Hamilcar turned Carthage into an empire more like Rome. It was now a continental land power based primarily in Iberia. The navy, the former senior service, went into permanent eclipse. The army was now both the leading armed force and the source of political power in the republic. That Carthage had become a republic ruled by a warlord was revealed by the rise to power of Hamilcar's successor, his son-in-law, Hasdrubal. The Carthaginian officers of the Spanish army acclaimed Hasdrubal their general. The civilian government in Carthage, which was largely in the hands of the Barsid's relatives, friends, and allies, then meekly ratified the officers' decision. Hasdrubal continued Hamilcar's policies with equal ability and determination. He drove Carthage's dominions northwards until it reached the banks of the Tagus River. Hasdrubal also built a new capital for the Carthaginian Empire in Spain. It was located on the finest harbor in southeastern Iberia, and so enjoyed easy communications with North Africa. Exhibiting a stunning lack of originality, Hasdrubal named his city Carthadash, Carthage. The Romans dubbed it Cartago Nova, literally New New City. Today, it is Cartagena in Murcia. The Romans at first did not interfere with the Barsids' empire building. In fact, Roman Carthage had no formal contacts at all for 12 years after the Sardinia crisis in 237 BCE. The Roman Republic had been drawn to the Balkans and Cisalpine Gaul, the region of northern Italy centered on the Po River Valley inhabited by the Gauls. But in 225 BCE, a high-ranking Roman embassy went to Hasdrubal. The Barsid warlord and the Roman ambassadors negotiated a treaty in which the Carthaginians engaged not to cross the Ebro River in arms. By contrast, no conditions at all were placed on the Romans. This treaty has often been characterized as another example of Roman bullying. Polybius states that the Romans had finally awoken to the threat of Carthage's new empire in Spain and were now trying to impose a clear limit on Hasdrubal's expansion. But many historians point out that Hasdrubal had no reason to agree to the Romans' demand if it was too onerous. In 225, Hasdrubal's frontier was still at the Tagus River, some 500 kilometers south of the Ebro. Hasdrubal, I think, interpreted the treaty as a Roman acknowledgement that the four-fifths of Spain south of the Ebro were now a Carthaginian dominion. The Romans wanted to come to terms with Hasdrubal because they were about to embark on a major war with the tribes of Cisalpine Gaul. Not since the height of the First Punic War did Rome mobilize such large forces, 14 legions and allies, amounting to nearly 130,000 troops. Moreover, a substantial proportion of these forces was stationed in southern Italy and Sicily. The only reason for this deployment was to counter any possible interference by Carthage. Yet, by coming to an agreement with Hasdrubal, the Romans were neutralizing the Carthaginians so that they could concentrate on the Gauls. In 221 BCE, Hasdrubal was assassinated. His successor was Hannibal Barca, who had been serving as Hasdrubal's deputy and commander of cavalry. Just as with Hasdrubal, the officers of the army of Spain elected Hannibal their general. Their decision was then ratified by a vote in the citizen assembly in Carthage. According to Polybius, this vote was unanimous. Hannibal was just 26 years old when he became chief general and de facto ruler of Carthage. 
Unfortunately, while we have a great deal of information about what Hannibal did, we know almost nothing about the man himself. Here, the nearly complete absence of Carthaginian sources is especially significant. We know these sources did exist. Two of Hannibal's closest companions produced histories of his campaigns, his tutor, the Spartan Sicilus, and the Sicilian Greek historian Silenus, but only three brief fragments of their works survive. Hannibal therefore comes to us through his enemies, the Romans and their Greek friends. They depict him as a military genius, an inspirational leader, and the deadliest enemy they ever faced. Polybius calls the Second Punic War simply the war against Hannibal or the Hannibalic War to emphasize his central place in it. The Romans also accused Hannibal of duplicity, treachery, and greed. In other words, all of the stereotypical Punic character traits. Above all, they were convinced he had a burning hatred of Rome. Later, long after the Second Punic War, after Hannibal had become just a bugbear whom Roman mothers might evoke to frighten disobedient children, the Romans could attribute some more positive qualities to him, but this only served to magnify their achievement in defeating him. So Hannibal will forever be almost completely enshrouded by a fog of Roman propaganda and myth. Only occasionally does that fog lift to offer glimpses of the real man. As soon as he took command in Spain, Hannibal demonstrated that he was a more than worthy successor to Hamilcar and Hasdrubal. In the autumn of 221, he led a punitive expedition against the Olcades, a tribe in central Spain that had rebelled against Hasdrubal. This expedition brought in substantial booty, which Hannibal distributed to his officers and troops, sealing his popularity with the army. In 220 BCE, he campaigned against the Vacae people of northwestern Spain. This campaign also brought the first of his great battlefield victories. On his way back from the lands of the Vacae, he was treacherously attacked by the powerful Carpetani. Chased by an army of 100,000 Carpetani warriors, no doubt an overestimate, Hannibal crossed the Tagus River at a ford called Tolitum and then lay in wait for the enemy. When a significant portion of the enemy warriors had come over the river, he crushed them with his cavalry and 40 elephants. He then recrossed the river and routed the remaining warriors. Polybius states that after Toletum, all of the Spanish tribes up to the Ebro rushed to submit to the Carthaginians. In other words, in just two campaigns, Hannibal had spread Carthaginian power over as much territory as Hamilcar and Hasdrubal had in 16 years. The instrument of Hannibal's first little-known victory at Toletum, as well as his most famous triumph at Cannae, was the superb army created by the Barsids. This army differed from the Roman army in two crucial respects. First, the power of the Roman army was based on its legionary heavy infantry fighting in the multi-line manipular system. Carthaginian armies had been influenced by the powerful military legacy of Alexander the Great and his successors, the rulers of the great Hellenistic kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean. An ideal Hellenistic army was a balanced force of heavy infantry, cavalry, light-armed skirmishers, and elephants. The army's effectiveness depended on a general using these various troops in judicious combination. Second, while the Roman army consisted of Roman citizens, mainly peasant farmers called up to serve as legionaries, Carthaginian armies were made up of foreign soldiers, drawn from right across the western Mediterranean. Many of these soldiers were levied from Carthage's subject peoples, such as the Libyans, or from allies like the Numidians. 
Others, such as the Balearic Islanders, were genuine mercenaries who served purely for pay. Carthaginian citizens only served in the army as officers. Yet, as we'll see shortly, they played crucial roles in ensuring the Carthaginian army's cohesion and combat effectiveness. The most reliable troops in Hannibal's army were his Libyan infantry. Recruited from Carthage's North African subjects, they fought as heavy, close-order troops. They had bronze helmets, large round shields, and body armor, sometimes made from metal, but more often from stiffened linen. They most likely fought with spears. The Libyans were well-drilled and disciplined, and capable of intricate maneuvers. The other heavy infantry in Hannibal's army were Spanish. The Romans dubbed them scutati because they carried large oval shields that resembled the legionary's shield. The Spanish infantry depended entirely on these shields for protection, as they did not appear to be equipped with any body armor at all, not even helmets. The normal Spanish costume was a white linen tunic with a brightly colored border and a floppy cap of leather, felt, or sinew. For offensive arms, the Spanish foot carried javelins similar to the Roman pilum, Their main weapon was the sword, which was either the cut-and-thrust type which had been adopted by the Roman legionaries or a curved slashing weapon reminiscent of a machete called the falcata. The Spanish tribesmen provided the bulk of Hannibal's cavalry. They were close-order, hand-to-hand fighters, so they undoubtedly employed the four-horned saddle. The Spanish cavalry were armed and equipped much like their foot, a large shield, a spear or javelins, and a sword. Only Spanish officers and picked fighters appeared to have had armor. The rest wore the linen tunics and floppy caps of all Spanish warriors. The other element of Hannibal's cavalry and the most famous troops in his army were the Numidian light horse. The native Berber-speaking people of North Africa, the Numidians were superlative horsemen, riding fast, agile horses without bridle or saddle. They were armed with a bunch of javelins and used only a small circular shield for protection. In combat, Numidian cavalry did not engage in hand-to-hand combat with their enemies. Instead, they swept into javelin range of the enemy, threw their weapons, then rode away again before they could be caught. In addition, they were devastating in pursuit, tirelessly chasing and cutting down fleeing foes. Hannibal often used the Numidians as his army's commandos, assigning them to especially dangerous and important missions. The Romans had no answer for the Numidians. The turning point of the Second Punic War was when the Romans made an ally of the newly unified Numidian kingdom, and so acquired their own Numidian horsemen. After the Romans took control of North Africa, Numidian cavalry, dubbed Equites Mori, or Moorish horse, became a permanent and formidable part of their armies. Numidian horsemen are prominently shown on the great triumphal column erected by the Emperor Trajan to commemorate his victory over the Dacians in the 2nd century CE, and which still stands today in the heart of Rome. Hannibal's light-armed skirmishers consisted of javeliners and slingers. The javeliners were Libyans, Numidians, and Spaniards. They carried a small round shield and wore a helmet, at most, for armor. In addition to their javelins, they would have carried a sword or dagger. Hannibal's slingers were the Balearic Islanders, famous across the Mediterranean world for their skill and their savagery in combat. Today, Hannibal's elephants are probably the best-known part of his army. Ironically, they were also the least effective. Elephants were a mainstay of the armies of the great Hellenistic kingdoms of Egypt, Syria, and Macedonia. Carthage copied this element of Hellenistic warfare as it did so many others. 
but Carthage only had access to smaller African elephants, not the larger, more fearsome Indian beasts employed by the Hellenistic armies. On the battlefield, elephants struck fear into troops who had never seen them before. They were also particularly effective against cavalry, because horses did not like their smell. But elephants were highly sensitive and temperamental animals, difficult to train and maneuver. Moreover, the Romans had fought against elephants extensively during the war against Pyrrhus and the First Punic War. To them, they were hardly a surprise. Worst of all, elephants cost a huge amount of attention and resources to keep healthy and alive. In the end, they proved more trouble than they were worth. The core of Hannibal's army consisted of African and Spanish veterans who had served and fought under Hamilcar and Hasdrubal. These men were tough, experienced, highly disciplined, and fiercely loyal to the Barsid family, who had led them to victory and richly rewarded them for their prowess. Hannibal's close-order Libyan and Spanish infantry were at least as good as Roman legionaries. Hannibal's cavalry and light-armed skirmishers were far better than their Roman equivalents. The Romans neglected cavalry, treating it as a supporting arm to the battle-winning legionaries. Roman Velites consisted of those who were too young or too poor to fight in the legionary battle line. By contrast, Hannibal's light troops were professional specialists. The key to the effectiveness of Hannibal's army was its Carthaginian officers. They held Hannibal's army together in spite of its extreme cultural and linguistic heterogeneity. The ancient sources never mentioned Hannibal's army getting into trouble because its troops and leaders could not understand each other. Another multi-ethnic, multilingual army of more recent vintage, the Kaiserliche Königliche Armee of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, used the common language of command, German, for the 100 most frequently used orders. Perhaps the Carthaginians had a similar system, most likely employing Greek, the lingua franca of the Mediterranean world. In any case, Hannibal's officers must have been remarkable linguists. They were also professional soldiers of long and varied experience. Like Hannibal himself, most had served under Hamilcar and Hasdrubal during the Carthaginian conquest of Spain. They had developed deep reservoirs of military knowledge and skill. Hannibal's officers had also learned to work with and trust one another. Collectively, they were markedly superior to their Roman counterparts. Above all, the officers of the Carthaginian army in Spain were absolutely devoted to Hannibal. The great British admiral, Horatio Nelson, used the Shakespearean term Band of Brothers to describe the Royal Navy captains he had led to such famous victories as the Battle of the Nile and the Battle of Trafalgar. I think Band of Brothers also aptly describes Hannibal's officers. In some cases, these officers were literally his brothers. When he took command of the army in 221 BCE, his younger brothers Hasdrubal and Mago were key subordinates. Another officer, Hanno, son of Bomilcar, was Hannibal's nephew. Hannibal's closest friend and rival in military exploits was Mago the Samnite. A certain Hannibal Monomachus, Hannibal the Duelist, became loathed by the Romans for his cruelty. Carthalo and yet another Hasdrubal would make crucial contributions to Hannibal's great victories and Maharbal, one of Hannibal's most effective cavalry officers, would also gain immortality for a handful of critical words he directed at his commanding general after Cannae. Hannibal and his band of brothers would soon face the greatest challenge of their lives. In the winter of 220 BCE, following his successful campaign against the Vacaei and Carpetani, 
Hannibal returned to New Carthage. There he found two high-ranking Roman ambassadors waiting for him. The Roman ambassadors made two stark demands. First, they repeated the basic condition of the 225 treaty with Hasdrubal. The Carthaginians were not to cross the Ebro in arms. Second, they warned Hannibal to keep his hands off Saguntum. Saguntum was a small but prosperous hill town in southeastern Spain. Although located deep inside Carthaginian territory, it had aggressively maintained its independence. To help keep the Carthaginians away, Saguntum had been wooing the Romans for years. Respecting the 225 BCE treaty with Hasdrubal, the Romans had always turned Saguntum down. Now in 220, the Romans announced to Hannibal that Saguntum was under their protection. The Romans intended their embassy of 220 BCE to be largely a repeat of 225. The embassy's goals were to establish contact with the new Barsid warlord and to clearly establish an acceptable limit to his ambitions. But a lot had changed since 225. Hannibal looked upon the Roman ambassadors as bullies and togas. Carthaginian power was now closing in on the Ebro. If the Barsids were to continue expanding, they would have to cross the river into northern Spain, a land rich in military manpower and natural resources, especially gold. Beyond was the vast, unconquered territory that the Romans called Transalpine Gaul, or Gaul across the Alps. In sum, Hannibal could no longer accept the Ebro line as a limit to Carthaginian dominion. Hannibal found the Romans' demand to keep his hands off Saguntum even more galling. By putting Saguntum under its protection, Rome was declaring that it was willing to interfere in the Carthaginian Empire in southern Spain. If Hannibal gave in to this demand, the Romans would be emboldened to keep interfering. Hannibal's answer to Rome was therefore clear and uncompromising. In the spring of 219 BCE, he laid siege to Saguntum. The Romans had clearly expected Hannibal to accept their terms just as Hasdrubal had done. His siege of Saguntum caught them militarily unprepared. In 219, both consuls and their armies had been sent to the Balkans. This development turned out to be a lucky break for Hannibal, because his siege of Saguntum took him and his army nine months. Siege warfare turned out to be one of the greatest weaknesses of Hannibal's generalship. When Saguntum finally fell, Hannibal subjected the town to a thorough sack and sold its surviving inhabitants into slavery. By attacking a town under Rome's protection, Hannibal in turn forced the Romans to send their own clear and uncompromising message. A delegation of eminent Romans, including the most senior senator, Marcus Fabius Buteo, sailed to Carthage in spring 218. Buteo presented a simple ultimatum to the Carthaginian chief magistrates, the Suffets, and the Carthaginian senate, the Adirim. Surrender Hannibal and his leading officers or face war. The Carthaginians responded with a series of increasingly convoluted arguments. Buteo cut debate short by dramatically grabbing a fold of his toga in each hand. I hold both war and peace, the old senator declared. Which would you have? Either one, equally, angrily answered one of the Suffets. Buteo opened his right hand and announced, Then I give you war. We accept it, cried the Adirim. The Second Punic War, Hannibal's War had begun. In the next part of our podcast, we will take our first steps to Cannae by examining Hannibal's invasion of Italy.